6 to 7 p.m. Sport on with Tabi Somosia. The way he handled his life and, and, uh, and his ability to, uh, to treat the good and the bad the same and actually go beyond that was pretty strong. The way he handled himself under extreme pressure, not only in the last uh, nine months, but also before that. He was a black man in a white sport, and he was uh, such a graceful person, and on and off the court, and that's uh, something that so few athletes, I think, nowadays have. Arthur Ashe wrote his own epitaph as to how he would like for us to remember him. I guess I tried to be a holistic athlete um, in the sense of not just stopping with what happened on the field or on the court. Ultimately, I guess I did not want to be known or remembered for just having hit tennis balls. Uh, and I don't think that will be the case. He did so much more than hit tennis balls. Well, good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining us on SAFM Spot On on this Flashback Friday with me, Tabi Samosia, and Katla Kumudiba and Timothy producing, and Sylvester Komane in technical. Well, uh, it's not only an early start, 6 to 7, for us on a Friday, but we also like to remember, celebrate, and honor our sporting stars of years gone by and look also look at historic moments in sport. Uh, the reasons uh, that we do that is uh, because we like to educate ourselves, especially about events or sport moments that happened before we were born that opening clip that we played is a form our, our, our the uh, former tennis players uh, the likes of Jimmy Connors and Pam Shriver playing paying tribute to the great African American tennis legend Arthur Ashe who you will have also heard in that clip now Arthur Ashe was the first uh, men's black tennis player to win the Australian Open Wimbledon as well as the US Open also the first one to make the US Davis Cup team but Arthur Ashe was more than just a tennis player he used the impact that he made or recognition he received from playing tennis by being an activist for change, a civil rights activist, an activist for racial socialization through sportsmanship. And this is a man who fought against the apartheid system while playing tennis all over the world. But he knew what was happening in South Africa and he made sure that his voice was heard. So tonight on the show, we will look at the legacy of Arthur Ashe uh, on and off the court. And the reason we are doing this is because there is a high profile tennis match in Soweto this Sunday between South Africa's number one Kevin Anderson as well as rising star Lloyd Harris and it will be played at the Arthur Ashe Complex in Soweto so it gives us an opportunity then to educate ourselves and find out more about this great man uh, called uh, Arthur Ashe I don't even want to call him a tennis player because of, of what he achieved off the court I don't know where his biggest legacy is is it on the court or is it off the court we're going to go all, all the way to the US uh, to speak to American Professor Raymond Arsenault, a historian at the University of South Florida and author of Arthur Ashe, A Life, will also speak to the president of Tennis South Africa, Mr. Gavin Crooks, and will also have a word with the head coach at the Arthur Ashe Tennis facility in Soweto. That's Mr. Patrick Tsunke. And if you are around during those times when Arthur Ashe won Wimbledon, uh, must be the late 60s and the 1970 when he won the Australian Open, please feel free to call us. Uh, he won Wimbledon in 1975. Please share uh, whatever memories or whatever you can share with us about uh, Arthur Ashe. Obviously, uh, we didn't see him play, so we want to find out as much as we can about uh, Arthur Ashe. Feel free to call us on 891 104 
0207. You can also send us voice notes on WhatsApp 061-4104-107. And our SMS line is 41391. Zanzi's Sporting Milestones, Moments and Stories. Flashback Fridays with Tabiso Musia. So then uh, let's go over to the U.S., as I mentioned, and that's where we find Professor Raymond Arsenault, who is a historian at the University of South Florida and author of Arthur Ashe, A Life. Professor, it is a good evening from us in South Africa. Thank you very much for finding the time to speak to us uh, on, on the show tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure. Glad to do it. Thanks, Professor. Firstly, uh, uh, Professor, we are remembering, celebrating, honoring, and just educating ourselves about Arthur Ashe tonight because there's a tennis game that will be played at the Arthur Ashe Complex uh, this Sunday here in Johannesburg in South Africa. You've written a book about Arthur Ashe. Firstly, why was it uh, important for you to just to document his story and his life? Well, he's a unique figure in the world of sports. Um, you know, he was a not only a paragon of good sportsmanship and uh, of civility and uh, a remarkable human being um, uh, and a great tennis player, uh, he um, was uh, deeply committed to the cause of civil rights and social justice. And there had never been a biography of him, and uh, I felt it was really an oversight by historians, and so I spent uh, nine years uh, trying to track down the details of his life and interviewing as many people as I could who knew him well and dealing with his family and his uh, peers on the, on the tennis tour. And the, uh, the chapters on South Africa were among the most interesting to me. And I think if Arthur had lived to see the book, I think they would have been some of the most interesting to him as well. He had a special spot in his heart for black liberation in South Africa, and uh, was the, probably his, uh, the cause to which he was most devoted. Mm. And we're going to get into that later on. So basically what you're saying is that what people can expect from the book is his life on and off the court. That's exactly right. I'd say uh, at least half of the book is off the court, and uh, uh, there's plenty of tennis there for tennis fans, but a, a lot of it is his life as a really extraordinary human being, uh, uh, a lot about his philanthropy and generosity and dealing with his diseases and uh, with racism and, uh, you know, growing up poor in Richmond, Virginia, and then becoming a, a, you know, a figure on the world stage. And how were your emotions, Professor, when you were writing this book, considering what uh, this man went through? Well, it wasn't always easy. It was an emotional roller coaster. Um, you know, of course, he, he dies of uh, complications of AIDS, which he received from a blood transfusion in 1983. He died in 1993 at the age of 49. So he never made it to the age of 50. And uh, I, I knew that was going to happen. That in, in some sense, the, his life story was going to have a sad ending, and the trajectory was... Uh, you know, it was uh, discomforting. But, in fact, I, I walked away from the book for almost a year. I wasn't sure I, I could could uh, stand the emotional toil. <laughs> my, my parents both had died, and I was getting older myself and feeling my own mortality, and I thought, do I really need to immerse myself in this man's life for another five or six years, mm-hmm. realizing uh, what I'm going to have to write about his battle with AIDS and 
also his battle with racism. And uh, but I felt if he if he could do what he did in his lifetime, then I could I could tough it out and uh, and try to tell his story as best I could. Let's talk about Arthur Ashe, the tennis player. Firstly, you mentioned that he grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Is that where he fell in love with the game? How did he fall in love with the with the sport of tennis? Well, he actually started playing when he was seven. Uh, his mother had died. Uh, he was very close to her, and uh, he went into withdrawal. His his father was the manager of the only, or well, the largest black uh, park in uh, in Richmond. Of course, it was cradle to grave segregation. The large white parks were off limits for blacks. But and Arthur grew up in in a house on the park, and there were tennis courts about forty or fifty feet away. And after his mother died, he was a kind of disconsolate, uh, withdrawn little boy. And there was a local uh, tennis player, the best black player in the city, um, Ronald Charity, who yeah. saw this little boy and took pity on him and tried to coax him out onto the court, uh, not not thinking for a minute that he would ever become a great tennis player. He was incredibly thin and small and uh, looked very sickly, and no one could have imagined him turning into a world-class athlete. Uh, but he, he finally did go out and play with uh, Ron Charity, and uh, all of a sudden he was beating all the other 8-year-olds and 10-year-olds, and <laughs> he was a little boy who could play tennis, and uh, he threw himself into it uh, with, an, with abandon and won his first national championship when he was 12 and and uh, was you know the, the greatest young black player in that part of Virginia, and he ultimately had to leave Virginia and go to finish his high school years in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, because they wouldn't allow him to play any white players, even though he was acknowledged to be the best player. It was, again, rigidly segregated. St. Louis was a little better, and he could play against whites and could play in the indoor uh, stadia, uh, you know, during, 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 during the winter. But uh, it's an amazing story. No, 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 no black player had ever aspired to what he uh, aspired to or what he achieved. Uh, so he sort of became the the Jackie Robinson, you know, the, yeah. the great black baseball player who broke the color line in Major League Baseball in the United States, uh, he became the Jackie Robinson of tennis, men's tennis anyway. You mentioned Ron Charity, and he came he, he, he came up a lot in the articles that we read when we were preparing for this interview, and you said that he was a former player. How good was he? Well, I, I think he was really talented. He had almost no formal instruction. He was playing for Virginia Union, college which was just up the hill from where arthur lived in richmond and it was a historically black college and they actually didn't even have their own tennis courts that they had, that's why they played at brookfield park where, where arthur lived and where his father worked and uh he was uh you know ron charity was very frustrated you know he kept trying to apply to get into the richmond uh, tennis championship and every year his his uh application would be rejected because he was black and he was very frustrated although had a measure of compensation later. He and Arthur, uh, many years later, uh, played doubles in the American Tennis Association a national tournament, and they won. And that was, I think, a great satisfaction for Ron, Ron Charity. And he and Arthur were friends for life. And uh, but he, you know, he was one of those black players who was sort of shut out of any chance to. Uh, you know, he was 12 years older than Arthur, and uh, his generation had no chance uh, to play it up. Uh, the competitive level. 
And and you went on to achieve success, Arthur Ashe, uh, despite the challenges, despite the segregation, uh, when he became the first um, African-American to represent the U.S. in a Davis Cup team. Uh, how big a deal was that? And, and why was that? Was it because there were no other players or other black players or was it because they just couldn't ignore him anymore? Well, uh, in truth, there there probably were no other black players at that time who could play at that level. Uh, at that point, um, Arthur was at UCLA, uh, one of the two best tennis programs, collegiate programs in the country, uh, and he was you know playing the best players you know day in and day out, and uh, so it was no surprise I think that he broke the color line in 1963. Uh, in Denver, Colorado, actually, when he played his first Davis Cup match. Earlier, he had been on the junior ten- Davis tennis, mm-hmm. Davis Cup team. and uh, But it was a huge deal to Arthur. I mean, he he took this as a, an emblem of his full citizenship. You know, he was, he, uh, you know, he was not a spread-eagle patriot, but he, he certainly felt that um, play, playing for the country, as he always said, he, he'd much rather hear the matches point USA than point Ash, even after he won... Uh, Wimbledon and the U.S. the first U.S. Open in 1968. Mm-hmm. He always said his greatest thrill was playing Davis Cup, and he had the had the best record in the history of Davis Cup play. He always seemed to, you know, uh, save something extra for his Davis Cup play, and had you know remarkable record uh, in winning in winning singles matches. And of course, between 1980 and 85, he was the captain of the Davis Cup team, which was even more extraordinary that an African-American was chosen to do that. It was a real uh, a groundbreaking experience, uh, even though he was ultimately let go as captain in 1985, in part because he got arrested in front of the South African yeah. embassy in Washington protesting apartheid. And the, the powers that be in American tennis in the, in the uh, Davis Cup committee didn't like that very much. He was, he was too much of an open activist for them. When did Arthur Ashe become Arthur Ashe the activist? Because he does say in one of the interviews that we saw or in one of the articles that he saw that when he won the U.S. Open in 1968 as a 25-year-old, um, uh, he said that gave him a platform and uh, he said that people will now start listening to him. That's exactly right. He actually started becoming an activist in March of 1968. Uh, he gave his first public talk at a church in Washington, D.C., um, and actually, the the great activist uh, Stokely Carmichael was in the audience, which was a bit intimidating for Arthur making his first speech. But he he was in the army at the time, and he was he was, he was against the Vietnam War, and uh, said some things that his army uh, 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 superiors didn't care for very much. But he he took a he took a turn towards activism in 1968, and he never looked back. Uh, uh, he um, I think part of it was the assassinations of Martin Luther King. Uh, he was a great admirer of Dr. King's and of Bobby Kennedy. And Arthur knew Bobby Kennedy, had played tennis with him in, in exhibition matches, and those assassinations, uh, something shook loose in Arthur's uh, psyche. And he, you know, it was never easy for him. You know, he was not a flamboyant person. Uh, uh, he, you know, he, he didn't really like the spotlight all that much but he felt it was his responsibility and <clears throat> he uh extraordinary what he what he did I and mean, often in a kind of quiet way you know he did it his own way he had a kind of cool personality and mm. uh he didn't really like emotion but he was committed to a kind of rational discourse and dialogue and 
uh, was extremely well read. He was a, really a public intellectual, and he applied that to so many social social issues. And part of what drove him the last 25 years of his life was guilt for what for how he had behaved before. His father was quite conservative, and once said, "I don't want you to get involved in that civil rights mess," as he called it, the civil rights mess. And Arthur was a very obedient son, and he he kept his eye on the ball. He was trying to be the best tennis player he could be, but he knew full well that while he was playing tennis at these fancy tennis clubs, albeit the only black there, um, other young uh, black children and teenagers, you know, were facing the the fire hoses and attack dogs in the streets of Birmingham, and uh, and he felt guilty. He once said later, near the end of his life, looking back on it, he said. As my fame rose, so did my anguish. As my fame rose, so did my anguish. And so a lot of what he was doing those last 25 years was trying to catch up, uh, trying to compensate for his early ina- earlier inaction, which is, of course, very common with athletes. Uh, they're self-absorbed. They're trying to be the best athletes they can be, and they often don't have much time for social justice uh, activity. And But uh, Arthur tried to challenge that stereotype and tried to urge other tennis players and other athletes to speak out and to uh, to put their bodies on the line so to speak and then and, and he did that for really for the rest of his life you 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 mentioned uh, a professor that he was in the military how did he then find the balance to also play tennis could you do both could you become professional tennis player and still serve in the army well he wasn't professional yet he he uh, he, he he spent two years in the army from 1967 to uh, February of 1969, and he uh, he didn't turn professional until March of 1969. Oh. So he was technically an amateur. Of course, open tennis, where amateurs and professionals played against each other, was just starting. And uh, but uh, they gave him leave. They 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 uh, even though the Vietnam War was raging, he was assigned to West Point. Actually, he worked in data processing and helped coach the freshman tennis team. But. Uh, uh, he, uh, he uh, his brother Johnny was in Vietnam, did two terms as, as a Marine, uh, but they wanted Arthur to you know represent the Army, and they tried to use him in a in a, in a way a kind of kind of propaganda way, uh, and uh, but he um, they gave him gave him very liberal leave so that he could go and, and play Davis Cup and and a, a number of other tournaments as well. So his his uh, uh, you know rise in the tennis world really wasn't. Uh, uh, delayed very much by his two years in in the in the army. In fact, of course, he was still, as I said, he was on leave when he won the first U.S. Open in 1968. It's amazing. <laughs> For those who are just joining us, we are talking to Professor Raymond Arsenal, a historian at the University of South Florida and author of Arthur Ashe: A Life. We are remembering, honoring, and celebrating Arthur Ashe. Uh, that's because on Sunday there is a big tennis match here in South Africa between the country's number one, Kevin Anderson, as well as the rising star Lloyd Harris. Uh, it's called Passing on the Baton, and uh, they are playing this at the Arthur Ashe Complex in Soweto. And later on, we'll speak to a coach from the Arthur Ashe Complex to find out more about the complex and the talent that's coming through. And we'll also talk to uh, Tennis South Africa's president, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Gavin Crooks. Now, Professor, just before we get to his activism, he also won uh, the Australian Open in 1970 and then he won Wimbledon in 1975. So that's three Grand Slams. And now, is there anyone that he would have cherished more than the other or did they all mean the same to him? Well, he surprised uh, the the press 
after his win at uh, at Wimbledon in 1975, when he the great upset over Jimmy Connors, mm. uh, whom he played, of course, in the first his first two visits to the South African Open in 1973 and 1974, and uh, uh, he and Connors were. Arthur was a very forgiving person and uh, very generous. Never seemed to say have a bad word to say about anybody. But the one person he didn't like very much, frankly, and didn't respect was Jimmy Connors. So it was kind of a bitter loss for him in South Africa to come come in second to Jimmy Connors twice. But uh, it was great, a great triumph for him to defeat Connors when Connors was at the top of his game in 1975. And Arthur was 31 years old. He was sort of over the hill a little bit. Uh, so it was quite amazing for him, uh, you know, 12 years after he played at Wimbledon the first time in 1963. Uh, but when the press interviewed him, he said, you know, this is really this is a great thrill and honor. I'm, I'm so pleased that I won, but it doesn't match um, my Davis Cup victories. That They wow. meant more to me. Wow. And um, on that note, I believe he was also very vocal in the tennis community about tennis matters. Absolutely. You know, he was probably the leading figure in the formation of the Association of Tennis Professionals uh, and in fighting for open tennis and for the rights of players, not just the elite players, but all the players. He was very democratic in that sense and was very courageous in standing up to the, for the powers that ruled the world of tennis. And uh, he was a very articulate spokesperson, and and uh, <clears throat> so he, um, he really... Uh, he he loved the game of tennis, I think, in a very deep, deep way. But for him, it was never so much about winning. He probably could have won more championships if he had had a kind of clinical bottom line approach. But he didn't have that. He loved the, the kind of the, the beauty of the game, the artistry of the game, of hitting the great, the best top spin backhand, and <clears throat> taking chances on the court, and which was somewhat different than his outward personality, which seemed so cool and collected and. Calm, but on the tennis court he was all, all fury. Never fury against his opponents, but just in trying to uh, trying to take the game to a higher a higher level. So he really had the love of the sport, like a little kid, really, all of his life, which is why he continued to play into his mid thirties until until, of course, his uh, heart disease uh, stopped finally forced him to retire in 1980. We've got a tweet here from Spiva who wants to know why exactly did he not like Jimmy Connors? Well, he, he it had a lot to do with the fact that Connors was a loner, kind of an outsider, and of course Arthur was something of an outsider too, being African American. But so he, and he had some sympathy for Jimmy Connors, kind of a working class kid uh, who was a fighter and a battler, a kind of Banny Rooster type personality, and. Connors was a, a terrific player, and he was making an enormous amount of money. And in those days, you had to do a financial sacrifice to play Davis Cup. Uh, and Connors wasn't willing to do it. And uh, they kept begging him to play. You know, with with him and John McEnroe playing at the same time, um, you know, they could have and, and Arthur, uh, they could have dominated uh, Davis Cup for a decade, but they didn't because Connors. He only played once or twice, and uh, when he found out that he wasn't the biggest star, there was McEnroe. He didn't. He sort of, he sort of went away again, and they. Uh, he was very coy about it. And Arthur, before the 1975 Wimbledon, he, in a letter to the other board members of the Association of Tennis Professionals, he he claimed that Jimmy Connors was unpatriotic, that oh. uh, he was more interested in money than representing the United States, and so uh, Jimmy Connors sued him for three million dollars. 
uh, and that that suit was was pending when when they played in the '75 Wimbledon. Now he after after Wimbledon, Connors quietly dropped the suit. It was kind of ridiculous, <laughs> but uh, they, so there's a lot of animosity there. Uh, I you know I think they were civil to each other, but uh, but. Uh, uh, you know, uh, John McEnroe often acted out on the court too, but he did it, I think, as in a sense of uh, that he just was so uh, determined to play his best. Whereas Connor was uh, a bit of a con man, I think, on the court, and uh, at least Arthur thought so. And uh, just uh, their personalities just were like oil and water. And uh, but uh, but Connor's really stood out in that sense. Uh, I think everyone else on the tour pretty much, you know, Arthur was a beloved and honored uh, and treasured. Uh, member of the uh, of the tour, uh, I can't tell you how many people that I interviewed mm-hmm. for my book, where they broke down crying at some point in the interview, uh, saying they they had tried to get their composure, telling me that Arthur meant so much to them they had a hard time talking about him, that he was the greatest person that they met in their lifetime, that they only wished they could be more like him, that he was a role model for them, and it was just. Uh, I, it was a lot of sobbing in these interviews, and I, 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 uh, uh, I, I, after learning as much as I have done on Arthur, I can see why they felt that way. He's a, you know, kind of a one in a million figure, not just a, a great tennis player, but a, a, a truly remarkable human being. And we actually have a piece of commentary, folks, from that 1975 Wimbledon final between Arthur Ashe and Jimmy Connors. Arthur Ashe winning 6-1, 6-1, 5-7 and 6-4. Ashe serving from the match. 5-4, fourth set. So, two championship points for Arthur Ashe. That's it! And he's done it! He really has done it. A stunning triumph for Arthur Ashe, whose tactical astuteness and ability to vary the pace of his shots proved too much for the power game of Jimmy Connors. Well... That's uh, Arthur Ashe on the court and off the court, as we've already uh, heard uh, from uh, Professor Raymond Arsenault. He was a monumental figure fighting for social change and inclusion, and uh, he seems to have taken a very keen interest in South Africa. Professor, you've mentioned a few times before. Were you able to trace when his connection with South Africa started? Uh, I was. uh, It's really in 1968. (laughs) He tried for several years to get a visa. And he was turned down several times by the white government, uh, and by by the white by the government yes. uh, of South Africa, the white government, and uh, uh, the, some people predicted they would they would never let him play. He he got ang he didn't uh, lose his cool very often, but once he did, and he he uh, made a statement uh, where he thought the white South Africans were so unreasonable that maybe they should drop a nu- nuclear bomb on Johannesburg. 
uh, and he was he was sort of joking, but the white South Africans didn't take to it very kindly, obviously, and uh, that that was used against him for several years. But finally, in 1973, um, he uh, was able to get the visa, and uh, it was very controversial. Some, of course, many uh, anti-apartheid activists in the United States and probably in South Africa as well. Uh, b- believed in sort of isolating the the white regime rather than engagement. And Arthur himself later came to that decision that you mm. had, the only way really to break through was to isolate um, uh, them from the, the rest of the sporting world or the rest of the world generally. And uh, but the, that's not what he believed in '73. So he took a lot of criticism. Uh, Dennis Brutus and others met him at the airport in London when he was on his way that first trip and tried mm. to talk him out of going. Oh. Um, but he always had a raw, strong independent streak, and and uh, he always listened to everyone. But once he made his mind up, uh, he was pretty firm in his convictions, and uh, so he thought it would, it would, uh, on balance, it would be better. Even though he knew there was a possibility that the white regime would try to use him, saying, "Well, look, we're not so bad. We let Arthur Ashe play uh, <laughs> against white players in South Africa. Uh, we we were not really a rogue nation, but." Uh, he knew that was a possibility, but he was willing to take that that risk. Um, but it was a uh, very courageous on his part. Took a lot of criticism in those early years, but went on to become one of the leaders of the anti-apartheid movement in in the United States. And it, as I said, I think it meant more to him than any other issue. You know, black politics in the United States could often be confusing with uh, you know, the draw of black power and uh, uh, people being called Uncle Toms if they weren't radical enough. And I think he saw. South African politics, so the, the white-black split, is something cleaner and more fine-lined, and uh, um, you know he could he, he could negotiate that world more easily than he could black politics in the United States because he thought the the moral uh, distinction between blacks and whites and their behavior was so clear in South Africa. Uh, I'm sorry, but I, I think I need to go now. I have to. I'm, I have a flight to Paris in a few minutes. Yes. And, uh, so I've got I've got to go to the airport, or I'm going to miss my plane. I'm giving a paper in, in Versailles on on, yes. on civil rights tourism in the United States. That's great. But thank you for speaking to us, Professor. We appreciate uh, oh, the time that you've given us. I was happy to do so. Thank you, thank you very much, Professor. He did say to us, to be fair, that he's got a flight to catch, and uh, he's going to speak to us just before he goes and uh, and uh, and goes to the airport. That was Professor Raymond Arsenault, a historian at the University of South Florida and author of Arthur Ashe: A Life. If you uh, have, if you want to find out more about Arthur Ashe, then better get his book, and I'm sure you'll finish the story there in the book. Maybe it's a good thing that he had to go so that we don't give out away everything that's in the book and people can go and buy the book but he also mentioned something very interesting the professor that um, Arthur Ashe was actually detained in the US for protesting outside the SA embassy during an anti-apartheid rally and that was in January 1985 and then uh, later on in his life well, not later on, but a few years later, then he was one of 31 African Americans who visited South Africa to observe the political change when it was when when things seemed to be changing. He came here as part of a group just to come and uh, find out um, if. Um, if, if the country was ready for change and how things uh, were going there. And later on in his life, I mean, he suffered a heart attack. He became a, a campaigner for the American Heart Association. And then as you heard from the professor there, um, 
He died of an HIV-related illness, uh, but not before he was an activist. It's believed that he contracted the virus from blood transfusions during his second heart uh, surgery. And uh, when the media found out, you know, the tabloid, the paparazzi, as they call them in the U.S., when they found out, they actually wanted to run with the story. And he got wind of it that they're going to run with the story. And apparently he had a press conference and he came out and he revealed that he was HIV positive. And then that's how the Arthur Ashe Foundation uh, was started. And they've done a lot of great work over the years and we